Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha. It's been a long time. Tonight on BC Radio Live, we're going to have to the website, Boyd and My Mortgage. We're going to have to go to the website, Boyd and My Mortgage. We'll also speak with Dave Rebell, author of the book called The Best Side Baccalaureate. Today is Wednesday, October 22nd, and this is a long-awaited reunion edition of BC Radio Live. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and the live video feed is now running. I'm assuming that was absent the last few weeks. I am Philip Wynn, button pusher for BC Radio Live and chief geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by Eric Olson and Lisa McKay. Eric Olson is BC Magazine's founder and publisher, and Lisa is BC Magazine's executive editor. Hello to both of you. Hello. Greetings, Philip. Long time no speaky. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, life under the new uh, the new overlords has been interesting, and and part of that, and presidential debates, and all kinds of weird last minute things have conspired to keep me off the air for low these many weeks in a row. Well, I know you're getting pulled in a lot of different directions. I'm 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 seeing the uh I'm seeing some of it from the from the inside. But yeah, you know, there's a lot of expectations. It's uh it's tough. Uh you know, now uh, you probably worked more in terms of total hours, you know, before the right. before the change, I'm guessing, but there's probably a lot more pressure now. Yeah, before I was working two jobs, kind of, you know, so I'd have my full-time day job and my full-time blog critics work, and honestly, they overlapped a bit, if you know what I mean. Uh, so now, you know, I, I'm down to one job, so that that's kind of exciting, but it seems like this one job is taking almost as much time and, and at least as much brain power as the two of them did before. So that that's kind of an interesting, interesting environment. How are you doing, Lisa? I'm doing pretty well. I, I feel like I'm uh, burning my candle at both ends these days, and um, that's you know that's kind of par for the course, though. But other than that, things are good. Well, you've got a nice new uh, new car in your family that I'm I'm trying not to covet or drool over too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing that uh, we're so many states away from each other. I'd be trying to stop by your house and bum a ride to nowhere in particular. Anyway, well, we should probably get our first guest is waiting for us, so uh, let's let's go ahead and jump to it. This is BC Radio Live, live every week at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and co-hosting with Eric and Lisa, I am Philip. Benjamin Dover has a number of websites, from the eponymous bendover.com to nowwhatdoyoudo.com, uh, tonight we're actually going to talk about one in particular, voidmymortgage.com, 
where Ben says that many homeowners may have illegal mortgages and that this fact can sometimes be used to get out from under crushing mortgage payments and pressure. I'm sure many people will want to find out more about this, whether you're being crushed yourself or not. Uh, welcome to BC Radio Live, Ben. Thanks a lot for having me this evening. How are you? I'm doing well. And uh, I should point out, actually, this, this happens so rarely. Uh, ben is relatively local to me. We, we often get people calling in from, uh, you know, the coast, and, and I'm, I'm often left out. But I, I'm here in Dallas, and uh, Ben looks like he's uh, calling from roughly the area, so that's exciting. Hello? Hello? Hello, Ben, are you still there? Ben? Well, we seem to be having a little bit of audio problem there. Uh, well, let's see. Hopefully, uh, uh, Ben, if you want to try to hang up and call back, we can try to, to get you back on here. We don't seem to be able to hear you right now. Hello, Ben. Okay, he's just dropped off, so hopefully he'll uh, he'll call back in uh, here in just a moment. Yeah, looking over. Speaking of the geographical proximity, there, looking over his uh, Benjamin Dover's really quite extensive resume. He has written for the Dallas Morning News. You did a column yeah. there. Yeah. Ask Ben from '98 to uh, '04. And uh, also on some local radio shows I picked up uh, as well. Uh, ben, can you hear us now? Okay, well, I'm kind of sort of hearing you there. I don't know. Yeah, I'm hearing a sort of alien version. <laughs> are, you, are you there, Ben? I, I'm here, guys. I there, can... there, there. We got you. Yeah, I can hear you fine. Thanks. All right, we, we were having trouble hearing you, but we're, we're, we're all set now, right? Yeah, I I hope so. Yeah, we're all local or semi-local anyway. Well, I'm in Cleveland and Lisa's in Connecticut. Yeah. But uh but Philip's right there in in your neck of the woods. So let's talk about the site voidmymortgage.com. Obviously, that is an exceptionally pressing matter these days. I would imagine you're getting quite quite a bit of response to the site. Uh we're getting a lot of action. Uh it's it's uh, uh, be out here in this line of advocacy because, uh, you know, when I first detected what we're now seeing, it's, it, all this showed up on my radar about 19 months ago. And I put it together. And, and you know, when I first started talking about predatory loans uh, in July of 2007, you know, we'd be looking at bailout money. We'd be looking at a depression, and I really discredited myself because people thought I was crazy. They thought I was tilting at windmills, and uh, and now, lo and behold, um, you know, it, it appears that I'm more accurate and, and, and frighteningly so uh, than even I could have uh, predicted. Hey Ben, are you on a cell phone and moving around, perhaps? Because you're coming in and out. Sometimes you're just fine. Others, you're you're just gone, and we're only hearing bits and pieces of sentences. Yeah, I'm I'm not moving at all. I am on a cell phone. It's the only phone I have, and I've been sitting in one spot. So, uh, wow. we need well, to find I mean, that key spot. <laughs> we're basically oh, picking up the gist that. That you've been sounding the alarm on this kind of thing for uh, for quite some time, and that uh, finally, all of a sudden, it's it's moved into the uh, the mainstream. It seems to be all anybody talks about on all the the daytime talk shows since the bailout with all these uh, 
mortgage difficulties. What what was it that um, what was it that caught your attention, you know, years ago when you started talking about this? Well, what happened was uh, friends of mine who are bankruptcy attorneys in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, we went to lunch in March of 07, and they were telling me about some trends that they were seeing and the number of uh, Truth in Lending Act violations that kept turning up in these foreclosures that they were dealing with in the course of their practice as bankruptcy attorneys. And I started picking their brain, and actually a friend of mine, uh, was director of enforcement for HUD for 10 years. I called him and said, he was lunch and picked his brain, and I realized that there were some problems out there in the world of uh, the mortgages that have been originated over the last several years. And so I started doing my research, and when I started looking at the gross numbers of loans, of adjustable rate mortgages, and started interpolating the data, uh, the deeper I dug, the more sinister the numbers became. And so I created, uh, actually, 18 months ago, I created the website, Void My Mortgage. We went live earlier this year. And uh, the real challenge has been dealing with the mainstream media because, you know, while the mainstream talk shows, head shows, all talk about it, they don't really have any solutions. All they do is complain about the gross numbers involved, you know, obviously it's possible that they're fault because they signed the line. They should not be fair because of the crap. Uh, and the reality well, here. I'll tell you what, let, let me interrupt a little bit, Ben, and, and just let you know we're, we're, we're still having an amazing amount of difficulty. Uh, it's, I don't know if the, the – we're having a little bit of a, a seasonal weather here in the DFW area, so it could be that rain is, is messing up your cell signal or something, but it's, uh, it's really difficult to make out most of what you're saying now. Um, I, I, I will say you started talking about one of your biggest challenges is uh, dealing with major media sources, the mainstream media. Um, I, I will say, I mean, honestly, my first reaction when I, when I saw your website, and I've, I've done some more poking around, and I, I think I may have modified my first reaction, but my first reaction is, was um, that if anything, uh, that, that what you were talking about might actually be part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Because at, at first blush, it almost seems like you're, you're telling people, look, you know, here's how to walk away from your mortgage rather than trying to keep making the payments and so on, um, driving the foreclosure rate up. Well, actually, no. I'm not uh, in, act in reality. Uh, it's not about driving the foreclosure rate up. It's about uh, keeping the foreclosure rate from escalating. The fact is that it doesn't matter what you think about the fact that somebody is in a loan that is predatory. Whether you think that they are in a loan because it's their fault is irrelevant. The fact is that when people have their mortgages audited to see if they uh, were victims of predatory lending, it doesn't matter what your moral or ethical judgment is. It's a matter of law. And if the laws were broken when they were put into these loans that were predatory, it's been a discussion and a game. They broke the law. Now they're going to pay. And that's not a matter of you thinking it's fair or not. It's just like saying, you know, officer, I was going 60 miles an hour in that 35, but, gosh, getting that, getting that ticket to me, not only I can't afford the ticket, 
but it's going to make my insurance rates go up, that's not, a get, that's not going to get you off the ticket. So the same thing here is that you're saying that we shouldn't enforce the laws because it's bad for earnings. Sorry, these laws have been around for 40 years. If the laws were broken, enforce the laws, bring these loans into compliance, and keep people from being foreclosed upon. Hey, you're coming in loud and clear. Good. Yeah, <laughs> your your entire answer came through clearly. Absolutely, no breakups at all. We are we are most happy. All right, well, I, you know that makes good sense to me. Uh, it, it, it's it really is. You know, the I, I think we're beyond the blame game where, uh, you know, looking at the big picture, there's plenty of blame to go around. Sure, uh, there are, you know there are plenty of consumers, uh, home buyers uh who you know probably made some some poor decisions uh, i mean it really just comes down to this, the 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 age old cliche you know if it sounds too good to be true it probably is and so a lot of these loans were just probably a little too good to be true people got into houses they simply couldn't afford but what you're saying is and that makes perfectly good sense to me if if you know, predatory lending was involved in that, then that's illegal, you know, no matter if, uh, you know, don't blame the victim is, is what I hear you saying. Well, I'm just saying it's not a matter of, uh, you know, uh, victim here. It's a matter of, of uh, compliance to federal laws. And, and it's sort of like, you know, if you look at a transaction, uh, a lending transaction, it takes two to make a lending transaction, obviously. Who's the more sophisticated party? The person who's out there buying their first house or maybe their second or third house or the mortgage company who loans billions of dollars every month. Well, it's pretty easy to figure out who should know better in that transaction. You know, if you go, if you go to your doctor and you keep telling your doctor that uh, you need pain medication because uh, you've got a pain, after a while the doctor's going to figure out that maybe you've got a, a, a problem outside of pain. Maybe you're an addict waiting to happen. So he's going to cut you off because they're, they're going to be responsible in, uh, in how they uh, parse out uh, pain medication. Same thing here. You've got the banks. They got greedy. And instead of uh, controlling their lending, they stepped it up because they were making record profits. And the fact is, when you look at people on these adjustable rate mortgages, you had people that were, you know, turning around and they were borrowing on the same property two and three times in a span of six years. Property prices kept going up. Brokers kept whispering in their ears, take money out. Don't worry. You know, lock in a lower rate. Take money out. Prices keep going up. You know, we can keep doing this till the cows come home. Well, guess what? Cows came home, and guess what they did all over your front lawn? And, uh, and so the reality here is, at the end of the day, yeah, you, consumers need to be responsible. They need to take some responsibility. They're culpable to some degree. But at the end of the day, if they were engaging in transactions uh, that were illegal and that they didn't know, they were simply uh, being given these loans, and they were being given loans that were predatory in nature, end of discussions, you're, you lose. The banks need to pay off. So, yeah, so let's just – can way, we take an example? That's, that's federal law. Can we just take an example? Someone comes to you. What, what, what are some of the, the telltale features of a, of a predatory, predatory slash illegal loan? Uh, easy. Uh, if the loan has a, uh, more than a uh, three-year lockout for a prepayment penalty – in other words, I've seen a lot of loans that have come through – that have a prepayment penalty that you can't prepay without getting nailed uh, sooner than four, five, six years. I saw one loan in California that came through with a 10-year prepayment penalty. The maximum under federal law is three years. Anything over three years is predatory. 
The other thing is uh, where they got somebody, and this is one of the, the common traps, where they get somebody qualified, let's say they got you qualified on that teaser rate, that 25 or 3.5% uh, opening interest rate, and it could adjust all the way out over five years. It could adjust all the way up to 12.5%. Well, the problem is that under the law, uh, you're supposed to qualify somebody on what's called the fully indexed rate, meaning uh, if you're buying that $500,000 house, uh, I need to qualify you on the maximum rate. It could go 12.5% not the 25 or 3.5% teaser rate. Because the problem is the minute that rate adjusts, uh, you couldn't qualify for that loan. It's predatory. And by the way, way predatory, uh, the definition of a predatory loan is a loan that you will fail in your ability to repay. So in other words, the minute that loan adjusted, the minute that rate adjusted from 25 3.5% to whatever the next level is, uh, you would not have qualified for that loan. It's predatory. It's illegal. And so, you know, you've got to understand, they were making these loans to people based on those interest rates, those introductory interest rates. And, of course, you know, when people would say, well, what happens if the rate goes up? I can't afford those higher payments. No worries. Just refinance, lock in a lower rate. Refinance. Well, that's great if you can refinance, assuming the prices kept going up. Let me tell you something, folks. I lost my ass in the 1980s when everybody else lost their butts down in Texas when the SNL debacle hit. I've already lost my butt once. And uh, that's where we learned the hard way, where prices don't keep going up. On one property, it took me 13 years to get out of it because I didn't uh, throw them back the keys. The only reason I didn't was because my ex-wife was still on the paper. Otherwise, I would have told them to stick that note where the sun didn't shine. But the fact is, I stayed on the note, and it took me 13 years to get out from under it. And the problem you've got here is that you've got a whole nation that's been duped into thinking that property prices will continue to go up, and obviously they won't. And that's where the trap, that's where the real big trap is. And that's why people have got to understand that they can go in there and hammer the daylights out of their mortgage companies and force them to renegotiate these loans if they're predatory. Yeah, people have really short memories. And it does seem that's a lot of what, what is influencing, you know, this whole entire crisis from individual mortgage holders to, uh, to big companies. It's just this, uh, you know, because things have been this way for the last 15 years, they'll always be this way. I mean, you only have to go back 20, 25 years. Sometimes you have to go back farther, and you see it can't continue forever. Well, uh, unfortunately, um, unfortunately, I say especially because we, we missed the first couple of minutes of being able to hear you before we, we finally got a, a clean signal, but we do have a couple of other guests queued up, and one has been our, our next guest has been waiting very patiently on the line. Uh, is there any last thing you want to say before we just point people to voidmymortgage.com and, and have them uh, check out what you've got to say there? Yeah, I appreciate the plug, obviously, and I appreciate the time on your show this evening. Uh, let me just say that, uh, you know, you're not a failure. You just failed. If you find yourself having a hard time making your mortgage payments or getting harassed by debt collectors, lots of information on my website, How to Fire Debt Collectors by Invoking Federal Law. And certainly if you're in a predatory loan, it's very simple to figure out. Uh, the process uh, can be done inside of 10 business days. And if you've got a predatory loan, then we show you how to go after your mortgage company and how to get them to retrade the deal. Because after all, we know these mortgage companies want to be compliant under federal law. And uh, we help them uh, uh, regain uh, some dignity in the world of lending by showing them how to bring these loans into compliance. I appreciate the time this evening, and I hope we get to do it again sometime again when we have a better line. All right. All right. 
really well, important stuff. Amazing timing. Thanks a lot, Ben. We appreciate it. Right, folks, thanks for the opportunity. Well, the website again is uh, voidmymortgage.com. That's uh, V-O-I-D-M-Y-M-O-R-T-G-A-G-E.com. And uh, I'm glad we did finally get to hear from Ben and, and help him uh, spell things out. I, I do think that there are going to be people still probably who uh, who end up wanting to spend more time thinking that, uh, you know, uh, it's a it's a big it's a big commitment buying a house. You're putting yourself, uh, you know, here here in the Dallas area, you're putting yourself on the line for say 150 and up. In in many areas, I know it's more like half a million and up. Um, you know, it, but I, I will say, just in my own experience, I've I've bought a couple of houses now, and uh, I consider myself a pretty educated guy, pretty smart guy. I did a lot of research ahead of time, and you know, there were still a few papers in each case that I signed that I, I'm not entirely sure what they were all about. So, I, I, I can I can see a little bit of uh, of what Ben was talking about there, if that makes any sense. <laughs> well, let's see. This is BC Radio Live with Eric, Lisa, and me, Philip. Join us live each Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Well, there is a certain type of person who accumulates knowledge, and uh, I should know because I'm, I'm one of them. Our next guest, David Rudell, has edited together just the book for those people, The Bedside Baccalaureate, a handy daily cerebral primer to fill in the gaps, refresh your knowledge, and impress yourself and other intellectuals. <sighs> Welcome to BC Radio Live, David. Thanks very much. <laughs> these, Sorry these for the delay. We, we, we couldn't get the first guest, uh, we couldn't connect with him. His phone kept cutting in and out, so uh, <laughs> we ended up getting a late start. It's nice and clear. It's a landline. It is nice and clear, and man, we still believe in landlines. In fact, we worship landlines, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> on Blog Talk Radio. And by the way, uh, I just got the book a couple days ago, and, but it is my new favorite book. It's it's really, really fun. And I love the way you have it put together with one page at a time because, you know, I have attention deficit disorder, uh, and uh, I'll tell you, that one-page snippet, that that's great. It's something you can really snack on, get a feel for it. Uh, if you choose to follow that thread, then all you have to do is skip ahead every fifth, every fourth page, and, and you can you can read it straight through. But I, I love the eclecticism and uh, tying it into, you know, what, what the underlying theme is of a, uh, a college education or, or certainly a liberal arts education, and that is to, you know, expose you to, uh, the, the most important knowledge that you will need to live in the world, and to teach you how to think. And I, I think, I think the book gives a really nice, you know, microcosm of a uh, excellent college education. Well, thanks very much. The, the entire point of the book really is to make important information easy to understand. And uh, you know, there are a number of books out there that claim to stimulate your mind, but I've always found that those books are sort of like diet cookies in that you eat them and they don't really stick to your ribs and, they're, and they don't really fill you up in any way. And so well, what we did was we went out and found 20 professors who taught courses, the kind of courses that you lined up for at registration when you were in college because they were such interesting professors and, and the material was so good. And we had them distill those courses into 18 single-page topics. And I worked with them uh, to help them um, 
take their ideas and express them in a way that anybody could understand. Because I'm a great believer. I'm a historian, and, and I believe that history is interesting, and it's often historians who are less than interesting. And we try to apply that same logic to a whole range of different courses um, in the social sciences, the physical sciences, art history, economics, philosophy. Uh, and so this is a book in which you can learn the difference between weightlessness and free fall, which I didn't know until, until I worked with this NASA scientist who did the, uh, the rocket science course, um, and the difference between Manet and Monet, which I always got confused. <laughs> Those damn French impressionists with their silly names. You know, I, I have a, a question. Um, the the one-page-at-a-time approach really leads me to think, it is, is bedside really the proper alliterative word to stick there? I mean, was, was there ever a debate about calling it the bathroom baccalaureate? Well, I think there are other books out there that claim that distinction. And what's ah. nice about having it by one's bedside, I, I don't know about you guys, but at the end of the day, well, all of us generally lead really specialized lives. You know, we have particular things that we do during the day that we focus on. And it's really nice, I find, in the evening to take my mind off that by reading something different. And sometimes it's a spy novel, but I'm a nonfiction guy, and I like to read a lot of nonfiction. And this is the kind of thing that you put it by your bedside. You can read a page or two at a time. The book comes with that lovely little ribbon stitched in uh, so you can keep your place. And I, I think, actually, it's a really nice way to end the day. But certainly you can keep it in other rooms of the house. <laughs> that was diplomatic of you. You're, you're a diplomatic fellow. Of course, as I know, having uh, uh, edited and uh, kind of lead authored a book with about 25 authors, man, you have got to be diplomatic to pull all that together. Well, uh, we were really lucky in that we only had one really difficult author. <laughs> well, that's pretty good uh, odds, I won't I'd say. say. Which one? And I bet you can't tell from the essays either. Well, that oh, that you you don't want to out him or her now? No, that wouldn't be kind. But you know, I, it would be I kind of counterproductive for future. <laughs> for, for, yes, for, because we need we need the bedside masters at some point, don't we? Well, what uh, already the second volume is done. Uh, so now I'm an expert in game theory and and oh, I love games. disciplines. The, the guy who did the game theory course actually did a fabulous job. He's a movie buff and he used many movie examples and TV examples right. to explain game theory. The newlywed game is one of his major examples, and also the scene in The Princess Bride when Wallace Shawn and um, says, Carrie Elway's Surely I cannot choose the one that is in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when it's analyzed mathematically, it's even more interesting, but not as funny. That's classic. Yeah, I love that. My, I, we just actually got that movie for my. Uh, I, I I kind of forgotten about it for a while. There's been some anniversary versions out on DVD lately. But my my daughter, who just turned nine, we're we're getting a late start with her on it. She had never seen of it, seen the movie, or heard of it till till just a few months ago. And we got the DVD for her, and so I got to see it a couple times recently. And it really is great. And yeah, that's a what a classic scene that is. So well, we've my got, daughter's we've got, 11, and she loves it, too. Yeah, so we've got 20 different uh, categories, 20 different sections, essentially, 20 different disciplines, I guess I could say. 20 different book. courses. Yeah. The, these are course. actually courses that the people who wrote each one teach, uh, and they're the kind of courses you'd find in any, kind, in any you know, major university course catalog. 
the French Revolution, uh, Impressionist art, uh, human origins, globalization, alternative energies, the sex of Islam. Uh, you know, you, you read this book in 18 pages, you're going to know more than most politicians about. about Did the you say there's sex in Islam? The sects of Islam. Uh, S-E-C, Sunni, Shia, so on. <laughs> um, those are the two main sects. There's a there's another one um, that uh, we don't. The poetic, the poetic one. No, no, I've forgotten the guy's name. He lives in Monte Carlo. <laughs> it's the guy who runs that third um, sect. He's a gambler. Oh. I've forgotten his name. But you'll know it when you hear it. You know, he like hung out with Grace Kelly. Really? Are you talking about the the Sufi stuff? I don't believe the Sufi are considered a sect of Islam. But oh. now you're outside my uh, expertise and well, into the I, expertise I, I of Michael Pergil, who wrote the course. Uh, okay. Well, Sufi's the one I like, man. That's the one that's they're they're like normal people. They're the the mystics. Yeah, they're the There's mystics. It's also a Buddhist course, and uh, when I edited that course, I had a very difficult time with that one because, as I'm sure you know, Buddhism is tough. And when I wrote to the, the professor after reading his course for the first time, I told him that my brain hurt, to, to quote John Cleese. And, and he responded, welcome to Buddhist studies. Yeah, it's rather counterintuitive. I, I was a, uh, believe it or not, I had a, a, a religion minor in, in my uh, liberal, very liberal arts education at Wittenberg University uh, many, many years ago. And uh, I love Buddhism and Taoism because they're so counterintuitive and they're so contrary to, you know, the obvious kind of Western way of thinking, and, and they seem illogical, although if you sort of surrender yourself to them, then they, they do develop a logic of their own. Well, Until what, Hollywood celebrities get a hold of them, and then they suddenly become very Western. One of the goals of the book was to give people a grounding in each of these subjects, so that if you read these 18 pages on Buddhism, you're not going to become a Buddhist scholar, but you're going to be able to own the information. You'll have a sense of what the Four Noble Truths are and what the Eightfold Path is in a way that you can then go out and talk to other people about it, as opposed to just reading one page about Buddhism in, in one of these, you know, everything you want to know in the world all in one book. You will be Uma Thurman's father. Uma Thurman, actually, <laughs> uh, her father taught at Columbia where I went in the Buddhist department, and I ran into him a couple of times. Very distinguished man. Knows a lot about Buddhism, man. I'm telling Knows you. Knows a lot about Buddhism. Hey, let's talk about yours. Uh, you do General Grant Civil War, which is the Civil War from his point of view, which I found really fascinating. I just kind of you know, got to start on the book, but um, that one really drew me in very quickly, um, you know, doing it from a, a person's, a historical person's perspective rather than just kind of a, a, a omniscient overview. I think that works really well. It's very interesting. And then you also did the civil rights movement. So love to hear a little bit about your thoughts on, on having to boil those down and how did you choose the perspective that you did and, you know, just any other thoughts from, from a writer's perspective. Sure. Uh, as far as the Civil War course went, the Civil War is too big to cover in 18 one-page topics. There, there's just too much going on in it. And really to have respect for the subject, I had to um, find a way to cut it down 
in a in a way that would both allow people to get a good sense of what went on, but would but wouldn't force me to cover lots of different topics. And by taking it just from Grant's point of view, it allowed me to talk about the great sweep of the battles because in order to understand Grant's perspective, you have to know what happened in Virginia before he got there. Uh, but really, it allows one to talk about um, what the war was like when it began. Grant, at that point, people usually don't remember, was out of the Army. He was cashiered out of the Army for being a drunk when he was stationed on a fort in Oregon in the 1850s. And once the war broke out, he desperately wanted to get back in it because he pretty much had been a failure at everything else. Uh, and he he had some political connections, but they weren't enough to get him a, a, a federal commission. So he ended up um, as a commander of some Illinois state troops, and he did so well with them early in the war in the West because, of course, the Mississippi River area was the west of the country in the 1860s, that uh, he, he moved up in the ranks, finally got a regular Army commission, and, and ended up being um, Lincoln's choice to head the war in the east after the failures of McClellan and Meade and so many others. Uh, and uh, Lincoln said about him, you know, I want Grant, he's a man that fights. And that really defined Grant. Uh, but personally, what was less known was that he suffered terribly from the choices that he made because um, Grant changed the war in the east by essentially fighting despite heavy casualties being incurred. All the generals who preceded him were very cautious about um, having too many people die. And Grant understood that the great advantages the North had were in men and materiel, and he pressed both of those, but that meant a lot of people died. And so Grant suffered from terrible headaches, almost debilitating ones, um, right through the end of the war. Wow, that's that really is interesting. Now, did he continue, you know, you have the cliché or the stereotype of him as this, you know, heavy drinker and whatnot. I mean, did that continue to be the case while he was while he was leading? In other words, did he use alcohol to fight off the the guilt and and the headaches, or or uh, did he uh, take a break from that, as they say? Well, Grant certainly drank heavily, but standards for heavy drinking in the 1860s are kind of different from what they are now. For instance, no one drank and drove then, uh, so he he certainly. Uh, Remember that during the Civil War, battles were set pieces in ways that they're not now. They took place um, rarely by surprise. Large armies mobilized and then went at each other almost in a Napoleonic kind of way. And in the winter, no one fought at all. Uh, and even in the spring when the roads were muddy with the rains, no one fought. So there were lots of times when that Grant could easily uh, become very drunk and it not affect <laughs> Uh, and and he did so. But there's still some argument among historians about how much he drank because many of the uh, officers around Grant protected him. So uh, what's your opinion on his uh, presidency? Uh, laughable. <laughs> uh, Grant was pretty much an atrocious president. Uh, he did one thing um, for a while that ties in actually to the, to the civil rights course. In the early 1870s, when the Ku Klux Klan was essentially taking over most of the South politically, Grant um, pressured Congress into passing laws that gave him martial powers over the South. And he used those quite effectively for a couple of years until about 1875, at which point, um, as his presidency was nearing an end, the political pressure um, 
for him to stop became even too great for him uh, to deal with. But other than that, Grant was a terrible president. He put cronies in power, mostly military cronies, who were crooks, just out-and-out crooks. And I'd say that Grant's presidency ranks right up there with that of uh, Benjamin Harrison for for really a, a dismal period. Right up there near the top of the bottom, huh? <laughs> People forget Benjamin Harrison. You know, he was truly terrible, uh, but also funny. Benjamin Harrison went on a on a hunting trip once, and uh, was shoot, supposed to be shooting bear. Instead, he shot a pig, and he said it looked like a bear. And so he was the laughing stock of the country, you know, for a couple of weeks after that. <laughs> well, maybe he meant a boar. Maybe he thought it was a times boar. Times different when a story like that can occupy the news cycle for several weeks. <laughs> well, the only really big story between 89 and 93 uh, when Harrison was president was the McKinley tariff, and that turned out to be not a really good thing. It was one right. of those protective tariffs that caused the panic of 1893, and that was kind of it for, for poor Ben Harrison. Yeah. All, all of this discussion of Grant actually leads to an interesting question. For, for people who haven't read the book, how much detail uh, of these subjects are there in, in, in the Bedside Baccalaureate? There's enough detail for you to feel that you understand what Grant's experience was like in the Civil War, but it's really digested into 18,400 or so word pages. The pages in the book aren't that big. Uh, the type isn't that small, so it, it you know it, it represents um, a way for people to get a good feeling for the subject without having to invest a lot of time and a lot of effort, which I think is what people are looking for now. No one actually wants to go back to college. That would be a great investment of time and money, but this is in some ways the next best thing. It isn't a trivia book. It is really good information from really expert people that has been um, presented and modulated in a way so that you can read it before you go to bed and you're not going to be scratching your head. This isn't reading Hegel. This is reading uh, clear prose, much more like journalism than it is like anything academic. Well, I got the sense in, in, in you know just getting a start on the book, and like I said, I, I really enjoy it, and I'm, gonna, I'm certainly going to continue on because, um, because it is fun to read and – they are very interesting topics, and and many of which I'm I you know would be interested in, anyway. But the sense I have is almost that not not that I'm being talked down to, not at all. I didn't get that sense, but that someone uh, an expert in the field is sort of translating the jargon and the you know the the givens uh, of that field uh, you know among the experts translating that for the educated reader. So I, I felt like I had a guide kind of to that topic. That, that was exactly the intention, uh, and that was largely my role. Uh, I happen to be the child of academics, so I can speak academic ease if I need to. Uh, but <laughs> like many, you know, if you're the child of an alcoholic, you don't drink. <laughs> and as a child of an academic, I didn't want to be an academic. But I can understand how they talk. I understand how they think. And so I worked with each of them to make sure that there was no jargon that wasn't explained. You know, certain terms have to be used because they're used in the field, but each one is explained clearly. I also got them to slow down a bit. And often we spent a 
lot of time working on the outlines for these because if you didn't start with a good framework, it could easily get away from you. And for each of these, I would say, look, is this something we can actually explain in 400 words? Maybe we have to leave that out and split this into two so we can make everything as clear as possible. And um, hearing that you felt that way is music to my ears, it's highly satisfying. Excellent. I aim to please, and I'm 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 really glad that I I was able to pick up on the that my perception met your intentions. I, I certainly can understand, uh, you know, how important that is and why that would be satisfying. So I'm 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 glad. I'm very glad that that was that I I came away with the what I came away away with was a, is an emblem of your success. Uh, so that, that's terrific. I'm I'm glad to well, hear that. As, as George Papard used to say in the A Team, I love it when a good plan comes together. <laughs> hey, well, let's talk about your other story too. We haven't really gone into that. I mean, that's oh, the obviously civil rights movement. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, think what think of the ramifications for the where we are at this very moment and what's going to happen in less than two weeks. Well, the civil rights movement is one of the uh, great stories of American history, and actually I've, I've written an entire another book about it called The Coming Free, uh, and that course is a, is a distillation of, of the book I had done. Uh, and in the um, course that I wrote for the Bedside Baccalaureate, I take in many ways the great events approach, which is a very common but really good way to talk about narrative history in that I deal with the major events um, of the civil rights movement. Because anyone who reads a course on the civil rights movement needs to come away knowing what the Montgomery bus boycott was, uh, needs to come away knowing um, what the freedom rides were, what the March on Washington was, what the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was, and, and what it did. But then I add in some other things that are a little less well-known. Uh, for instance, um, someone in the news recently, John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, um, once said that what set him on his course um, to being the great civil rights leader that he was was the death of Emmett Till in 1955. And Emmett mm -hmm. Till was a 13-year-old um, African-American boy who had been born in Mississippi but had moved with his mother, as so many African-Americans did, up to Chicago um, soon after his birth. And in 1955, he had come back uh, down to visit relatives in Mississippi, but he hadn't been acculturated uh, in the relationships between whites and blacks in Mississippi. And so anyone who knows the story knows that uh, he whistled at a white woman in a um, rural country store in Money, Mississippi. And for that, he was taken from his uncle's house and lynched uh, and thrown into the uh, Tallahatchie River. And there was a trial uh, of the two men who took him, the woman's wife, uh, the woman's husband and brother-in-law, and they were both acquitted in about five minutes. And it was a national sensation. And John Lewis said that it was because he identified with Emmett Till, who was about his age, that that sensitized him to the issue and made him want to do something about it. And then John Lewis went on to become sort of the zealot of the civil rights movement. Um, he ended up being almost everywhere and taking part in almost every major event from the Freedom Rides, from the sit-ins to the Freedom Rides to the March on Washington, and, and thereafter he was on the bridge in Selma, Alabama, when the state police attacked the marchers uh, in 1965. And 
I could have I could have done it as John Lewis's civil rights movement, but then I wouldn't have been able to talk about Booker T. Washington and W. B. Du Bois, and I and I really go all the way back to Reconstruction because that's when I think the civil rights movement really started. Well, sure, the expectations at least were were sown then because uh, you know all of a sudden uh, blacks are put in the position of uh, being in suddenly in a position of authority, or at least at least um, you know that possibility was there. And then, of course, that was taken away from them rather rather quickly uh, after that, and that's what led to the whole uh, Ku Klux Klan movement and on and on and on. Absolutely right. And Speaking of Hegel, that was very Hegelian, wasn't it? We had the uh, <laughs> we had some dramatic shifts back and forth, and then finally something of a synthesis. Well, you really tempt me when you bring up Hegel because. I, I love Hegel. I find Hegel fascinating. I do, and too. And actually I a related course in, in the book. The, the worldview of Karl Marx has three or four early lectures. We, in, in our, uh, to, to extend the metaphor, we call each of the single-page topics lectures. Uh, and there are three or four lectures on Hegel's dialectic. I'm digging the dialectic, man. I live by it. <laughs> and if you think about it, what's so cool is from someone who's you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly not an academic in philosophy, but I was reasonably well schooled. I was a among my many majors. I, <laughs> I was a philosophy major, and so you know, I, I had that that grounding. But um, I was going to say is what astonishes me is the similarity because think how different the fields are, but the underlying principle is exactly the same uh, between that and jet propulsion you know it's it's amazing to me that human behavior uh, is is reflected in in the physical world and vice versa for each action there's an equal and opposite reaction yeah is that where you're going uh-huh, uh-huh. well uh the the marxism course includes a joke which i wasn't sure if i should leave in as an editor but i did uh, it's an, it, it is the way that the professor explains the basic of what a dialectic is, the opposition at the root of it. And he cites an old joke um, from the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, I should say now, uh, from Block Island. Block Island is this island in, on Long Island Sound just off the coast of Connecticut and Rhode Island. And uh, it was known as a very, very windy place. The wind never stopped blowing on Block Island. So the joke is, did you hear that the wind stopped blowing on Block Island and all the houses fell down? <laughs> that that is a good analogy. I like that. Holding them up. I like that analogy. That's excellent. And yeah, well, I, I just find the whole thing very. Uh, you know, where we're saying Buddhism is is counterintuitive. I, I find the whole dialectic really intuitive. I mean, it just makes sense. You know, I mean, it's it's human nature. People push. You know, there is a response to that push. Then if they are smart and reasonably, um, you know, if if diplomacy and intelligence will out, which obviously, of course, that is not always the case, but over the long haul, I, I tend to think it is. I, I, I do see uh, history having a, uh, a direction. You know, I do believe in progress, in other words. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's all kinds of cycles, you know, and some of those cycles go, cycle way back, I think, but I, I still see the, the overall direction of, of, uh, of human, 
history as as having a direction and and it being generally positive. But you know, over the long haul, I mean, it it just makes sense. You people kind of pick and choose, you know, from the various arguments, from the the uh, proposition and the counter argument, uh, and and they do eventually come up with some sort of synthesis. And I mean, to me, it really does make an awful lot of sense. As I said, I've always been a big fan of Hegel, and I always felt that in the way that Marx, you know, took from Hegel, he Hegel was very religious and believed that the purpose of history was God's idea becoming more, ever more manifest. And I think that Marx took almost everything that mattered for, for his early material from Hegel, except for the God part. And in many ways, Marxism can be read as Christianity without God. Right. That's how's that for heaviness? That's very interesting. Yeah, you know, Marx is Marx would be great if he wasn't a Marxist. <laughs> well, there's this one really terrible thing about Marxism, which is that in many ways, Marxism is like an apocalyptic cult. And he said, okay, capitalism is going to destroy itself, and there'll be the the uh, the revolution and the dictatorship of the proletariat, except it didn't happen, and it's kind of like that old Rowan Atkinson. Uh, well, wait, there, there's still time. Capitalism is attempting to destroy itself uh, right now, but well, I I think if it does, it won't be doing it in the Marxist way. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I, I think That's Marxism true. has been shown to be a disconfirmed apocalyptic cult. At least the later Marxism, the Marxism of Das Kapital. But it's the earlier Marxism that I find particularly interesting because I think that's really much more – it's the philosophy that's interesting. The economics is part of the dismal science. Right, right. Well, I, I've, got and, quick, oh, I've got a quick interrupting question for you, David. Go right ahead, are you man. The same, are you the same David Rubel who uh, offers the Scholastic Encyclopedia of the Presidents and their times? I am indeed. Well, I'm I just, just want working you to know on the that, new uh, edition. My uh, my children who are homeschooled actually use that book as part of their uh, their curriculum. So thank oh God, you. he's a homeschooler. <laughs> <laughs> well, they could do much worse. <laughs> no, I, that's actually if you that do book say is so now going to be in its sixth edition. Yeah, wow, I, that's quite a success story, I'd say. I'll have to uh, check which edition I have. My, my wife's a big fan as well, so. Congratulations Great. On, on an excellent book. It, it's always tricky doing the new editions because I consider, you know, if 25 years hasn't passed, I'm writing current events. And <laughs> doing that as a historian is always a little tricky, uh, but there was um, th- there's actually a funny exchange on the Amazon website about that book uh, that I, you know, I, I must admit, I check the reviews occasionally. And one woman wrote a terrible review of it saying that she could not believe what horrible things I had said about President Bush President George W. Bush immediately followed by another review thanking the first review and saying once I read that I knew I had to run out and buy it right away (laughs) a little microcosm of the country on that website you know what that was? that was Hegelian man (laughs) there you go the opposition again So where well, do you I, teach? I, I, Actually, I do not teach. I'm, an, I'm what we call uh, euphemistically an independent scholar. M- mostly I'm, I'm, a, I'm a writer. Um, I'm actually what is called a book p- 
producer in the publishing industry. And that's kind of like being an independent film producer in the movie business, except I get paid a lot less. And in the same way that uh, Warner Brothers will give Oliver Stone $100 million to go out and hire actors and gaffers and the best boy, whatever he does, and, <laughs> and, and just come back with the film that Warner Brothers then puts out in all the bookstores, publishers uh, come to me to create books for them, which I not only write, but I also manage uh, the editing of, the graphic design, the photo research. And so what I give a publisher is the entire creative uh, product, which they then go out and market and sell. And it's, wow. a, great, it's a great dig. I really yeah, that is a, that's super. That's super. Also, How many books have you written? Theory. I'm sorry? How many books have you written slash produced? Well, I've produced in the, about 25 or 30, and I've written about half of those. I've been doing it since uh, 1990. Wow. Well, that's still a lot. I mean, you're talking 18 years. Oh, yeah, years. more than one a year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a lot of work. I I, I know, not not from lots of experience, I've, I've written um, three books, and... Uh, the one uh, that I was talking about with all the authors, that was the Encyclopedia of Record Producers, and that took three years. So, I mean, I know how long these things can take. And if you're, if you're doing high-quality books more than one a year, that's, that's very impressive. That's a lot of work. Well, if I'm writing it, I need a, I need a year to do it. Uh, it. It can't be done quicker than that. But if I'm editing it, I can edit pretty quickly. I read really slowly, but I can write and edit pretty quickly. I'm, I'm not sure if there's a connection there. That is uh, so you're, odd. You're not, actually, you're not actually reading everything you edit? Uh, well, if you think about it, re- most people read really quickly. If I read slowly, I'm still reading faster than most people write. Yeah. And I can write almost, fa- almost as fast as I can read. You know, I have very similar traits. I edit faster than than either of the above. I can write quickly if if I hit a, a groove. You know, if I have it kind of planned out ahead of time and I know what I want to say and I have my argument and I just kind of plop it all out, I can do that quickly, although it can take me a long time to write, too. That's variable. But I also read quite slowly. I uh, I, I mean, if, I, if forced to, you know, like in the old... In the old days, taking a test, you know, uh, the, the, I, I can go quickly and I can force myself into the, you know, the comprehension mode where you're picking up the key points uh, as you're burning through it. But, man, I just find that extremely stressful. And I still miss a lot because what you tend to miss is the style. You, you may pick up the, the, the actual information, but, you know, as a writer and, and editor myself, and I've, I've been writing for – you know, much of my life, uh, I, I'm just as interested in the voice and the style as I am in, in gathering the information. So I don't want to burn through that because, because then I miss it. Sure. Well, the, the books that I like to, like to create, and especially the ones I'd like to write, are ones that um, help people get that kind of feeling about what they're reading. I, I like, the way I, I visualize it myself when I'm writing is that I want to write something that is is so clear that it goes directly into the back of your brain. You don't have to think about it or or skip over words or not you know say well what's that or ponder something. I want it to go right into your head, and I think that what that allows readers uh, to gain is 
ownership of the information in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. If you're just skimming a magazine article, you may pick up a couple of facts, but they're probably not going to stick with you. If you read something carefully, but without having to struggle over it, it becomes part of you in the way that listening to someone lecture goes right into your head. You know, when, we've all had the experience of sitting in, a, in some kind of classroom or lecture hall or conference where the person talking is so clear and so informative that they say it, it goes right into our head, and it becomes part of our information base. And I think that that's really um, you know, what all authors should aspire to in, in one way or another. And as my wife likes to say, uh, it is my passion in life to explain things to people. And that includes, you know, explaining things to the guy at the gas station if something strikes me as, as interesting. <laughs> well, my kids all say, the, especially the older kids, say, man, you know, why don't you go be a, a college professor somewhere, man? Because you just never shut up. And you're always telling us about stuff and explaining it to us and, you know, all that's really great and everything, and you do it well, and you got good energy and whatnot. But man, you should leave us civilians alone and go teach in school. And uh, man, my response, of course, is, <laughs> I can't afford it. Well, my kids say, Dad, you should go on Jeopardy. Ah, yes. You want to buy that's a whole different yeah. world. <laughs> well, you know, from from a nine-year-old's point of view, an intellectual, a pseudo-intellectual, it's all the same. I've been through that route, not Jeopardy. Uh, I was on Tic Tac Doe in my early 20s, and I'll tell you what, it's not so much what you know, so much of it's luck. I mean, if you, if you, if you can stay on for a, an extended period, the luck diminishes, obviously, because you, you're going to have to answer a really wide range of questions. And, and, and that was really a pretty hard show. Not Jeopardy, not, not that level, but, but not too many levels below. I mean, you know, really did require a fair amount of knowledge. And and I did okay. I was on. Um, I won a few times, almost a week, I think. But uh, what what got me was simply my age, because I was early twenties, and there and there were some cultural references I just didn't know that that my grandmother, born in Norway, <laughs> with a like a sixth seventh grade education, very very intelligent woman, self taught, uh, you know, very very perceptive, very. Uh, intuitive and and very knowledgeable for that matter but you know not not educated and she said oh eric you're so stupid <laughs> you know but then of course she said well i wouldn't have known i wouldn't have known some of the ones you got too but now there's some couple of cultural references that that killed me i know them now you know now i'm, I'm 50 years old now but at the time uh they, they did me in but it, it's not just it's it's not just what you know you have to be able to summon it that's the key to the game shows. You got to real. You have to. You have the ability to sum it, to drudge it up from somewhere in your brain very quickly. Well, well uh, I've never had that experience. <laughs> it we sounds have, like you uh, should do it. You do well, I'm sure. We've come to the end of our hour. Thank you very, very much to David Rebell for spending so much time with us. Actually. Yeah, that was great. Really enjoyed it. My pleasure. The book. The first book, the book that's due out now, just out this month, is called The Bedside Baccalaureate, a handy, daily, cerebral primer to fill in the gaps, refresh your knowledge, and impress yourself in other intellectuals. The sequel, semester number two, if you will, 
it's uh, April 7th, so uh, I, I don't know about any of the rest of the folks of them that have just gone into my cart from Amazon. And uh, again, thank you to David for spending so much time with us. And uh, also thank you to Benjamin Dover for talking with us earlier in the show. And of course, as usual, a big thanks to Eric for co-hosting the show. I'm Philip Wynn, this is been DC Radio Live. We broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Be sure to visit this live to participate in the chat room, watch the live video feed. If you miss the live broadcast, audio archives are available online, or you can subscribe to the podcast to have DC Radio Live delivered to you each week. Until next week, aloha!